personal note from actor James Cromwell to fellow co-star on this episode, Jeff McCarthy, upon him landing the role voicing Michigan J. Frog, the WB network mascot in 1995. That'll do, Frog. That'll do. <laughs> Welcome to Re-Engage. I didn't read that. Is that true? It's true. It's a real. I found, so it, cool. I found it in the archives. On this here podcast, we watch every episode of the sci-fi series Star Trek The Next Generation, and we re-engage with that show from the perspective of adults. That's us. We're adults, right? Instead of the babies we were when it was first airing in 1990. Uh, today, we are talking about the 11th episode of season three, The Hunted and I'm so excited to welcome you, my fellow cultural bridge officers, to discuss this A-Team morality play. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing pretty well. I'm very excited to see the three of you. And these are some of my favorite guest stars, as I say every week, but this time I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I can't wait to get into it. Kate Yeager, how are you doing? I'm doing just swell, Greg Tito. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this episode where every person that came up, I was like, oh, that person. Oh, no, wait, that person. So it's an exciting episode in that regard. We're all that Leo meme of like pointing at the screen, holding our beers. <laughs> like, oh, I know yes. him. Yes. I know him. <laughs> Jimmy G, how are you doing? Uh, I am doing great. I'm very excited to talk about the latest two upgrades to the Federation Phaser Evolution. <laughs> it is truly the device that can do everything. We get uh, Teleporter, too. A lot of new stuff from them. It's true. It's true. Uh, we'll get to all of that. Uh, again, this is episode 11, The Hunted. It is in star date 43489.2. But in our world, it first aired on January 8th, 1990. Not a lot was going on on this particular week. I will say on January 9th, the day after this aired, Jim Palmer and Joe Morgan were elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's kind of neat. Strong class. Joe Morgan, probably more known as a, a broadcaster uh, to many folks uh, over the last uh, two decades uh, after this, after his induction here. Uh, but he was a wonderful uh, second baseman. Best second baseman of all time, ladies and gentlemen. It's true. Though I would argue Frank White has an argument there, but that's only because I am a Royals fan. <laughs> also on January 9th was the uh, 64th manned space mission, the Columbia. Uh, it was the 10th mission uh, launching into orbit there. Um, and a couple of weird fun things on that mission was that it was the, one of the longest uh, space shuttle missions. It was 11 whole days up in space. Wow. Um, and it also had, uh, I just, I like this as a, as a thing that they do. They play music uh, at the morning of each day, and then they're supposed to mean something for some of the crew members. Some fun ones in there, but the, my favorite was that they played Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf on day 12. <laughs> Cute. And, uh, and, and Larry Bird singing Danny Boy, which I, I need to find that recording somewhere because that sounds amazing. The Larry Bird? Yes, the Larry Bird singing oh my Danny Boy. God. Singing? Does that sound amazing, Greg? I, I I think it would be pretty bad, but it sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> it took a whole year after we talked about Tiananmen Square and uh, the massacre that occurred there in China. Uh, they imposed martial law, if you remember, as that was all happening. And on uh, January 10th, two days after this aired, is when they lifted martial law. So that was a whole year. And it also reminded me of uh, the lyric in the Billy Joel song that, uh, Kate, you'll be talking about, perhaps, uh, China, China Under Martial Law. And it, it was like, oh, man, he was really 
you know, of the moment when he was writing those last few lyrics to that song, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why I want the sequel. Right? <laughs> yeah, we should update it. Get, get... We continue to have not started the fire. <laughs> William Joel, come on, get on the horn. Uh, have you heard the news that there's going to be a bio uh, series about Billy Joel that does not have access to his likeness, his name, or any of his works? <laughs> the music. I love it. Which is how you know it's going to be true. That's right. <laughs> Ooh, Long Island is not going to look good in that one. Kate, what else was going on uh, back in 1990? Well, Phil Collins took us back to another day in paradise once Uh. again this week. Uh, A beautiful yet sad song. Uh, And on the movie front, we were born on the 4th of July, uh, which was released in January. So I don't know how that works. And I was not allowed to watch that movie. Uh, I just remember that. I remember it was a Tom Cruise movie. And I was like, that dude. And it was like, not this one is not for you. And it has continued to not be for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's that Oliver Stone mixed with Tom Cruise. Ah, Yes. Perfect storm. (laughs) On television, Deborah Norville made her debut as the co-host of the Today Show succeeding Jane Polly. I remember that being a big deal because, you know, Jane Polly had been host for so long and here was this young thing and coming in to co-host with Brian Gumbel and and anytime America's trusted number one morning news uh, changes someone. It's a big deal, I guess. Especially when there was that transition between there being only two or three channels on TV that had mm-hmm. news. Uh, so this was in that period where cable was starting to come in, but it really wasn't as strong and in every single household like it is now, right? And then yeah. now we don't even have cable. Now it's all just streamers. And Remember when streaming was going to be so much uh, less expensive, uh, <laughs> but then that turned out to be a lie? Yes. They'll always find a way. They find a way. Speaking of which, the last thing on our on our list is that week Time Warner was formed uh speaking mm. of conglomerates that would go on to grow and change and uh who knows who they are now it's like time warner cartoon network uh, <laughs> aol Missile. onassis jr <laughs> general electric yeah. <laughs> right Ugh. well uh thank you for that uh trip down conglomerate hell and <laughs> jimmy g what was going on behind the scenes of the hunted uh, well, most notably, uh, we get a walk to the Jeffries tubes. Mm. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the Jeffries tubes are actually named after Matt Jeffries, who was the set designer and the person who actually designed the Enterprise from TOG. So they named those tubes after him. The original generation. The original yeah. generation, not the original show as TOS. TOG. TOG. I like it. And then, uh, oh, yeah, we got our first look at the finalized security uh, space. So we'd only had references to it or like a very generic version of where they uh, their brig. Uh, And this one would become their actual set. Uh, So when we revisit uh, the brig hereafter, it will uh, look the same. Right. It was that episode with the Klingons who were kept in in a brig-like thing. That's right. They've they've finalized it now. That's Uh, cool. And that's all from the Nemesic Files. Eric, we do. We alluded to these amazing guest stars. Let's let's jump right in because these are two that are near and dear. It's getting ready. I'm going to talk fast and then ask for comments. Are you ready? Ready. Yeah. 
All right, the Prime Minister is James Cromwell. Babe was cast against type, not the other way around. Classic, enormous head actor. Babe, Ellen Confidential, and then every movie that Alan Alda was too old to be the villain in. Son of two enormous movie stars, Kay Johnson and director-actor John Cromwell. His dad was a victim of the blacklist. He had an incredible career spending silence in the 60s. He had amazing career, Prisoner of Zenda, Little Lord Fauntleroy, Cage, Made for Each Other, and The Other Woman, starring my favorite, Carol Lombard. Blacklisted and then finished with an acting in A Wedding for also starring my friend John Considine. Then he uh, directed for years at the Guthrie in Minneapolis and uh, passed away not too long ago, actually. His baby son has had a rather long career as well, won the Emmy for American Horror Story Asylum, where he was magnificent, got big-time fame with Babe as the only American allowed to do a Scottish accent other than Mike Myers, who's actually Canadian. L.A. Confidential. Every time he guest stars on TV, he's nominated for an Emmy. ER, Six Feet Under, Succession, RKO 281. That uh, light list of his other stuff is his very fil first film role was in Murder by Death, which you got to see if you haven't. His second TV role was recurring in All in the Family and then a series regular on the Hot L Baltimore, which I had no idea had had a series. Recurring on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which I like to say, then the Nancy show, if you remember Murder by Death, that, every TV show of the 80s, and now I have a reason to bring up Give Me a Break, which I loved so hard. Showed up again as the father of Louis Skolnick in several Revenge of the Nerds movies, tons more Star Trek, and then Babe opened the floodgates for him. Erasure with Arnold, People vs. Larry Flint, First Contact, LA Confidential, Deep Impact, General's Daughter, The Green Mile, Space Cowboys, Some of All Fear, Recently, There's No Way to Keep Up. Dude has a Wikipedia article just on his filmography. We watched in real time as he went from a working actor to an actor that can ca ask for any weird shit he wants on his writer. He's an activist arrested as often as possible, mostly for PETA stuff, but also for fracking, civil liberties, etc. What do you guys say about our friend James Cromwell? First of all, you said PETA stuff, not penis stuff. So Correct. for a second, I was like, he got arrested for penis stuff. Cool. <laughs> P-E-T-A. The activism of that. Murder by Death is one of my favorite movies of all time, and no yeah. one has ever seen it. And it's, if you love Clue, you'll watch Murder by Death and go, hey, they stole all of this in Clue, and you'll be right. <laughs> they, they they do for content warning they do do that horrible white dude thing oh it is true make a point about racism in hollywood by casting a white man in yellow face Oof. and is the wrong thing to do but that is a, a large part of it with the charlie chan takeoff who was of course always played by a white guy in hollywood history played by a white guy in this to poke fun of it always having been played by a white guy Ineffective fuckers don't do it. Neil Simon. Don't do it. Neil Simon, I'm looking at you. I do, going back to things we like about James Cromwell, uh, I love that story. I don't know if you've, you've heard it, but the reason why he is probably as best loved is that last shot in Babe, when he's looking at the camera, he wasn't gonna do that role. He was like, this is silly, I don't wanna do it. I'm only in, I only have like 16 lines. He was convinced to do it as a, a you know free trip to Australia, because when an Australian film directed by a, a Mad Max uh, creator, um, George and, Miller. Yeah, exactly. Long Sorry. Rain. Thank you. I was going to say George Romero, which was very wrong. <laughs> um, but also a legend. James Cromwell tells the story how he was looking at the camera and he saw a reflection of himself in makeup, in costume, and he looked like his father. And he thought his father would have been proud of what he had been able to accomplish in his career so far. And so the tears in his eyes are actually him thinking of his father being proud of him. And that's why it works so well. And that's why he has the career he has. And I just love that story. I love that. Also being the son of two of the most famous people in Hollywood history. But he is so good. That is so amazing. I didn't know that story at all. It's a really cool story. But then, yeah, we have other co-stars on this, on this amazing show. Well, the thing is, we have to move right on to Mr. Jeff McCarthy. Uh, Greg had the wonderful occasion of telling us that uh, he was contacted for one of the roles that we're about to mention. Oh, I made that up. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> Jeff McCarthy as Roga Denar. Denar. Denar, thank you. All right, here we go. Another classic big noggin actor. He's an ACT dude from San Francisco, super well-known actor in the industry. Greg knows he was Officer Lockstock in the Broadway cast of You're in Town, dream role for many large actors. <laughs> Physically large, that is. Other Broadway gigs include two years as the Beast in Beauty and the Beast, opposite the perfect Christiane Tisdale as the Belle, who played my stepmom in Elf a few years ago, so I gotta brag about that. She's the best, any excuse to mention friends. He was also great in The Pirate Queen, the notorious production of Smile, which I encourage you to look up. Other great theater stuff includes includes the new public production of Southern Comfort, also starring Anish Seth, amazing actress with Seattle connections. In 2012, he was the lead title role in The Grinch in the same slot at Madison Square Garden where I was butt of the F. I want to meet this dude. Incredible screen career as well. Robocop 2, Eve of Destruction, Rapid Fire, Cliffhanger. Fuck yeah, he was the voice of Michigan J. Frog. Hello, my baby. In the sequel to the amazing uh, One Froggy Evening directed by Chuck Jones. He got to work with Chuck Jones. He's the chief medical officer unnamed on an episode of Voyager in the episode Caretaker. He's a director, writer, producer, and legend, Jeff McCarthy. Do you guys know him from other stuff? Tell me. Never heard of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hadn't either until I was like, I looked him up just a little bit. I'm like, oh my God, Officer Lockstock. And uh, he's in the pilot of Voyager. He's the one, he's the medical officer that gets right. killed and then is that's replaced right. by the hologram uh, for the rest of the series. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so amazing too. I thought his performance in here was really good. I wish I wish this was the heartthrob actor that was playing opposite Deanna uh, in, in previous ones because I'm oddly attracted to this dude. I don't know why. It's the big noggin. It's the big noggin. It is. All right, we'll move on to J. Michael Flynn as Zayner. He hasn't done, he's still around, but he hasn't done much since 2008 when he was on Ghost Whisper. He was on Alias Charm, Boston Public, Desperate Housewives, etc. Recurring on Star Trek Enterprise as Niji, I think. I couldn't find uh, the pronunciation in that quick a time. So I'm Gen X. Fuck it. Tons of guest spots on TV through the 80s. MacGyver, Santa Barbara, St. Elsewhere, Scarecrow, Mrs. King, you know the drill. Great career. Andrew Bicknell as Wagner. A Brit with terrific resume, including the recent smash last night in Soho. Dude is still kicking it. Mm. And a list called Game of Thrones, which we all vaguely remembered. His his credit is in the final episode. He is Riverlands Lord. And that is a credit one can just hang up. Uh, British series and films shot over there like The Dark Knight, Prince John, and The New Adventures of Robin Hood back in the 90s, all the way back to Monty Python's Meaning of Life, as he is part of the Crimson Permanent Insurance uh, building block of the insurance people that is uh, actually a pirate ship. It's one of my favorite ridiculous sketches ever, and he is one of the stars. That is it for today. Let's move forward into the episode. I love all that. So the meaning of life. I just showed the fish uh, scene to my daughters because I was like, we got a new fish. And I was like, fishy, fishy, fish, it's over there. And of course, they were not <laughs> laughing as much as I was. Uh, it's, no. it's lost on them, I think, a little bit. But this episode is not lost. It is, it is found. It is a wonderful bit of television that we're going to get into. And it begins... Uh, with an opening scene in a new planet that we have not seen before is the Angosians, Angosia 3. We mentioned uh, James Cromwell's figures really prominently in this opening scene with Picard and Riker talking to him about possibly entering them into the Federation. They've, they're applied, they've given all of their, their documents and everything to them, and uh, uh, Picard and Riker are there to kind of assess and see like whether or not this is, this is good or not. Uh, and Riker has this wonderful line where he's like, hmm, I don't know. This place is a little too stuffy for my tastes. 
What did you guys think? Was it was it stuffy? Well, it's stuffy compared to the last, you know, most of the planets they go where they're wearing diapers uh, <laughs> in order to greet them. Well, and, you know, James Cromwell's got a bit of a dick vibe right off the bat. So, like, I can see Riker not liking him so much. And it's and it, you know it's shown to be a little bit more pristine. Of course, this is their government offices, so of course it would be showing off the best. But it does look a little bit buttoned up. And then the prime minister Narok, his aide comes Zaner and says like, "Oh, we got something going on. Looks like there is an escaped prisoner." And uh, they ask the Enterprise to help. And of course, Picard's you know magnanimous enough to be like, "Of course, we'll fix your problem in space." And uh, they attempt to do that, where Data is in command of the bridge. We get a little back and forth with Wesley Crusher and him trying to find out what's going on with this smaller ship. It goes around an asteroid and then disappears. They don't know where it went. Have you all seen, it's going around Twitter today, and this will, you know, come out in a few weeks, but uh, it's it's a it's a chase with the police and yes. the perp. And he goes and he runs and he hides behind a car and the helicopter catches him. But the police all come zooming up. They all get out right next to the car. And you're like, oh, he's screwed. But instead, they go running the other way while this guy is hiding. Then they come running back. And you're like, oh, they're going to get him. No, they run the other way past him again. The whole time, the helicopter is on this guy. And then they come running back. And you're like, oh, this is the third time. This guy is fucked. But no, they go to the chain link fence. And they're trying to figure out how to open it. And he's literally by their ankles at that point when some. Someone looks over and you can see they all kind of go, oh, shit. And then there he is. Uh, it reminded me very much of this moment. Yeah. And he uses all those tactics. And we were seeing just the first of them uh, here. This uh, moment where he goes around and they just don't know what's happening. Data orders uh, Wesley to take them around to the other side. They realize there's wreckage. The ship is there, but the drive is still going. And it's gone. And Data has that great moment when after Picard checks in saying, what happened? It's eluded us. Eluded the Enterprise? Flabbergast moment? You just want Chris Angel to show up on the bridge and say, mind freak. (laughs) (laughs) Just the first of this guy's tactics. We get the credits rolling and then it's up to Picard and Riker. They're like, okay, we're going to find this dude wherever we can. Uh, What's happening? And uh, there's a large, you know, kind of sequence here where they're, they're, everyone's trying to throw out ideas of where everything's going. Both Wesley and Riker talk about how he should be in sensor range. Yeah! Sensor. Data says it, sensor. But, like, they just keep over-pronouncing the word sensor as though it is. It's like pronouncing Lady Gaga. <laughs> well, it's it's like, I remember circa 2010, the TV commercials suddenly started saying Realtor. Like they were villains. <laughs> like I had only I had only heard realtor growing up my entire life, and then suddenly they were like really hitting that OR, and that's what this reminded me of. Are you saying that Skeletor is a realtor? Apparently, Gray Skull is worth at least a million dollars at this point. I think. <laughs> so then uh, Riker mentions, oh, maybe he's hiding from the sensors uh, in the magnetic pole. Uh, this is a reference to actually a uh, previous episode in which Riker, in, in, in fact, does that himself. Uh, so he's like, oh, he knows all the tricks. Uh, and then they find the ship there. It comes at the ship, bounces off the shields. And that's where Data is able to realize, oh, wait, this was all misdirection again. And that he's actually in a little escape pod. 
And they legit are like some of the people on that uh, on that deck are like legit respect like about this guy because there's that moment where he's going towards them and everyone freaks out for a hot second and it's like no no we're fine we're safe the shields are at maximum but he doesn't give a shit like he's uh you know coming in and he's a honey badger he just don't care like (laughs) just using it as a little launching (laughs) off point it's brilliant right i think it's jordy who's in the back who's like man this guy's incredible (laughs) right Jordy, Jordy's attracted to him too. You could tell. But no life signs. What's right. that all about? None. Nothing on there. So they beam anything that is. But a heck of a lot of BDE. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, uh, it was, it, I'm not sure who it is, but they're like, beam anything that's a big enough size to be a humanoid onto the transporter. He comes in and then O'Brien uh, and the rest of the security team there get F the fuck up. But but first, O'Brien puts him in stasis, scans him for weapons. He says he finds an unauthorized weapon. What do you think an authorized weapon is in the transport? <laughs> like, why don't we do this for everybody? Maybe they do. Maybe it's part of like the screening process, right? Where they screen for... This is the first rude man? Yeah. Well done, dude. Uh, I also like that O'Brien is just like, more security, more security. <laughs> like he repeats it like four times. Uh, and we get the first of many action sequences in this episode. This really, I, I alluded to A-Team earlier because this really does feel like, you know, that kind of 80s action uh, throughout this entire episode. Uh, not to mention the overtones about uh, veterans and stuff, but we'll get to that uh, later. But it takes a lot of people to get Danar uh, subdued, including lots of phaser fire. O'Brien himself gets shot. Like, it was intense. Fucking shoots O'Brien! Yeah. And I think this is the first time Worf wins a fight outside of the holodeck. I was writing that down, too. It's it's interesting, because I think everybody goes into this being impressed with him. So Worf doesn't hold back, which is great. Uh, This fight is the first one in the series that I was really impressed with. It's a long fight. It's clear to me that the, the, the guest star himself played that character in the fight. He does a fantastic job. It's very acty. Like, there's, there's grappling, which is really hard to pull off in, in long takes. There's a fantastic tackle that Michael Dorn does on, I want to get his name right, uh, Jeff McCarthy, right? Yes. Where he, he goes full speed, tackles, they spin around and land continuing that direction and it's a very it's a safe maneuver and they did it really well but it's a it's a complex one and there's not padding there's i mean they show the entire floor everything it's a pretty impressive fight that has six or seven acts within the 45 seconds or however long it takes i'm really impressed with it i loved it that scene that i or the shot that i remember the most is one where he's like breaking the security guys breaking the arm yeah yeah that's one you can learn quickly and it can last four or five seconds. And if you have a, two good actors, like it, it looks violent as fuck. Yeah. And that guy's scream is really, uh, you know, feels real. I'm sure it was done in yeah. ADR, but it was, it was amazing. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I, I booked a fight choreography gig today. So I got very into this fight. Yay. Nice. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> for my inspiration, I will be taking, you showed this tape. You're like, we're going to do this uh, fight, but in. Uh, <laughs> Fuck yeah, I should. Yeah. That's a good fight. And you're right. Worf does win. Worf and Riker are able to finally get and subdue him. And you see uh, Dainar on the uh, floor. And again, O'Brien has a great line where he's like, Commander, 
is everything okay? And then that's where we end, right? That's where we go to commercial. Poor, poor O'Brien is not able to hold down the security in his own transporter room. So we see the brig. That's where we open here. Uh, there's some arrangements between Picard and uh, Mayrock. And I think this is the prime minister here kind of alludes to some of the nefarious stuff going on by saying keeping him under sedation throughout the entire time. Basically trying to be like, don't let him talk to you because we don't want you to know about what this guy is. Um, but it's, it's only kind of clear once you get through it. I thought that was uh, a really good uh, writing moment. What did you all think of, of that first scene with Picard and, and, and James Cromwell? Yeah, bringing up the prison psychologist <laughs> right away. The prison psychologist thinks this guy's a little too tough for you. Might as well just knock him out so he can't talk. Yeah, it's a really terrific way of dealing with it. And Picard shows a healthy skepticism. But they still don't know. There's no life signs still. There he's there. Is the computer? Is he there in the break? Nope, nobody's there. And they're like, Riker's like, he's in there. I don't know. <laughs> They also mention, he says, the the cell, singular. There's one cell on the Enterprise. That is a confident fucking crew. <laughs> they do have a prison, but there's one cell and it is empty, even though there's a guy in it. And we see some nightmares. I, I like this inclusion because it does feel very much like a war veteran would, right? Like this, this episode itself doesn't go into... The effects of war itself it's more about what the government did to get people up to that war but i did like that they at least um showed that he is a character in turmoil uh in his in his sleep and that troy is able to feel that while she's walking down the hallway what do you think of that jimmy i know you're a big fan of when troy feels feelings <laughs> uh or anybody <laughs> an open womb of emotion yeah i mean it's it was uninspired but it's necessary so we can crack open this nut of a of a story with this guy otherwise um we'd have to have some like sleuthing or backstory so for once her uh, special abilities get us right to the story which was uh, (laughs) enjoyable i think it's an interesting too because uh dreams are the one place where you in theory can't lie so her having that connection to where he's feeling i i feel like that goes into her analysis of him later that he is this conflicted character and it may be a slightly lazy way to do it but i call it efficient (laughs) yeah and i like their conversation that follows right she immediately goes to the brig and wants to find out who he is and why he's there and and she provides him with the first information of he doesn't know what this ship is or why it's able to outmatch him the way it has but i like this this is a weird almost more intimate conversation than the uh one we just had with max matt matt mccoy sorry right and i I, and their back and forth feels like they have much more of a connection even though uh dinar is playing with her most of the conversation yeah i mean it's it's not as outwardly um skin crawlingly upsetting which is really helpful (laughs) right i mean it's it's interesting i like the way he plays with the tropes that she's looking for right like oh you think i'm damaged you're right uh why because you know he's a dictator and she's like why are you being so rude and he's like a girl with brown hair broke my heart no just kidding i was abandoned no just kidding you know like he's been through it and doesn't trust her and that's a really easy way to let us know that he doesn't trust her and that you know it's just i i think it's a it's a good scene and i'm really glad really glad that they never went for a romantic connection between these two characters there's a connection 
for sure. But there's no attempt to sort of, I was about to say, thrust love upon us. Uh, (laughs) So I said it. But yeah, like there's no there's no attempt to sort of shoehorn in something we don't need. Agreed. I think that's why it's more effective and almost you're like you want them to have a connection more, which is better than the writers trying to thrust it in there. (laughs) Well, they've you know, it's the introduction of the character this way, the, 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 the speech patterns and everything that we do, we immediately trust him more than we trust the prime minister and and we're kind of meant to yeah it's nice that he was able to thread that line that he was supposed to but not everybody could <laughs> that is being an asshole that the audience trusts right away like we we know he's been done wrong not just because we've seen things like this before but like because they're like Kate says, puncturing holes in that, but we still trust this guy immediately. And it's a fun, a fun performance. Yeah. And he gives the information that he's basically kept on a lunar five, Luna five as uh, a prisoner. It's great. It's a wonderful, well-apportioned prison, but it is still a prison and I can't leave and I hate it. And he's also all the turmoil that she was feeling while he was asleep is, is gone because we're meant to assume is the, the conditioning that he's not emotionally out of control when he's awake. It's only when he is asleep um, and that just makes Troy feel like even more like there's something that's not being um, explained by the Angosians. And she goes to the uh, goes to the Picard mm-hmm. <laughs> and tries to plead the case a little bit. Like, I'm not letting him out of his, of his cage, but something doesn't feel right here. Picard does not hear it at first. He's like, this dude tried to, you know, he, he's he's dangerous and I'm going to be happy to turn him over. Yeah, it took five men to bring him down. He he points out but it is one of those yet another where i'm like you you know you're gonna end up listening to troy <laughs> when all is said and done so maybe you should listen to her now right but then right. we would have less of a story so i get it and i like that she's like what do you do when you have a question you go search on the internet to see yep. what's going on and there's no search hits no results for Danar and any crimes that he's done but she does find out that he was a soldier a warrior uh maybe not a decorated one but at least had a a, a very long and successful record in the military and she goes back to him and says hey i know something about you you were a soldier and uh, that's where he kind of spills the beans. We get some of that in the scene itself where he talks about how he was conditioned and that his first instructor was also named a counselor. I like that. I like that kind of contrast between what Troy is trying to do and how that can also be very manipulative by the yeah. government. Well, for the second week in a row, I am reminded of Blade Runner, right? Last, mm. last week, we got the tears and rain speech from the defector. And, uh, you know, this this week we get very much the same kind of setup you know used and used and used and abandoned and not just abandoned but hopefully hidden away forever and it's it's good sci-fi material to mine always super effective it's great lines too she said like when she first accuses him she says what did you do and he says everything they asked me to do which is just like a a mic drop moment and that's not where the scene ends right like it continues on to have a few more like gut punches like that i just think it's a a really effective scene yeah Uh, made more effective by the fact that as you indicated greg it it slips into the next scene so we don't have all of that we have you know an interesting way of telling the story um where we're not trapped in that small room for that whole time we move forward in time i like it when they do that 
Yeah, me too. Because you're like, you know, there's going to be more said here, but then you get the report from the other characters and that just informs it even more. But this is the first hint I think that we do get that he was ex-military and mistreated after the end of that conflict. And it's something that was certainly on a lot of people's minds in the 80s in dealing with uh, the veterans who returned from the Vietnam War, right? I mean, in some ways, it was it talked about ad nauseum. And I mentioned the A-Team early on because this really was the entire premise of the A-Team was like, they were meant to do great things. They did special forces and then they got screwed over. And so they're still trying to, to find the justice that they're looking for. A little more Rambo though, right? More Rambo With, maybe. But the first one, the good one. Yes. I think people forget that the first one was like Oscar worthy. And then it just became yeah. a joke. But the first one well, is yeah. really good. First one's fantastic. And, and the bad guy is the system and yep. corrupt small town cops. And, and there's an actual political statement that has teeth and merit and then they said fuck it <laughs> for all the other ones let's let's kill brown people as much as possible there you go <laughs> so I, don't have a good, I do not have a good transition there so i will just no. move right along to the scene directly afterwards which is uh the report that troy and crusher uh dr crusher do about he's been conditioned he's been given all these chemicals which dr beverly crusher just rambles off but we're meant to believe that it is you know similar to the way uh there are stories about uh, governments using the experiments on soldiers jacob's ladder uh, comes to mind fucking on mk ultra dude yeah it's all there and then uh, i love picard's ending line here that the lunar five luna five is uh orbiting gulag he's starting to sour on those angosians for sure uh, but we got this great scene with Data and Danar. Like he just wants to go in there and 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 find out what is going on. And I love this scene between these two. What did you, what, Jimmy? I'll go to you uh, between Brent Spiner and Jeff McCarthy here. It's a great debate back and forth with the robot and the human who's been made into a robot, almost like the uh, and the dichotomy. I think with within Danar is is pretty interesting. Um, that he knows he's bad and he doesn't want to be, but he he knows he can't help it. <laughs> you know, that, I mean, it makes him a really interesting bad guy. Not because he's inherently bad, but, you know, he, he's been made bad. And so that, that, that talk between the two of them is, is uh, I think the most interesting thing in the episode for me was this little scene between Data and, uh, and Danar. Roga. Roga. Danar. Yeah. I, it's got that great line where he's like, because of my enhanced abilities, I can, I've killed 87 people. And because of my enhanced memories, I remember all of their faces. Yeah. And that's awful. It's interesting. He says, uh, how do you separate the program from the man? Which is really interesting and, and talks a lot about that kind of how, how we prep people for the atrocities of war. Uh, but it is such an interesting conversation with someone who, a being who all they want is to be, to separate their programming from being able to be human. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting construct. And it's always telling when, to, when some character is alone with data how and whether they engage him. Mm. And he engages him as a person uh, immediately. And that's always something I'm looking for. And I also like how he's immediately a dick at first, Rogadinar. And then he's like, oh, wait, wait, hold on. I actually want someone to talk to. Maybe you do have something that you can give me. And in some ways, too, it's part of his conditioning. I'm sure he's trying to get as much information as he can about his surroundings. But it does feel, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like he's actually just trying to 
search for a friend or something. That scene ends and we move on to Picard and Troy saying, you know, we might want to help him, but we really can't. Like, we're, we're, this is not our place uh, here. And then Picard himself goes and, and has that conversation with uh, with with him. And, and I like that exchange very much and that he says as honestly as he can, like, I wish I could help you, but I can't. And then Dana, I think, also honestly returns being... Thank you for saying that face to face. That's a lot more than probably other people in in, in government ha that he's seen uh, before uh, be able to tell them. At least you gave him that. But he's also like, but I'm going to try. I still have to. It's part of my programming that I'm going to try to get out of here. That very much reminded me of the uh, Princess Bride. We are both men of action. Lies do not become us. That there's this honor amongst amongst them. I just want to. There's a, a point right before Picard comes in to see him where there's this small conversation that he has with um, James Cromwell. Yes. Where where James says, it's a matter of internal security. Picard says, a matter of internal security, the age old cry of the oppressor. And I just felt like that was really, like that hit me really hard for right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Just that idea of, um, yeah, like this is all in, like there's nothing to see here. We've got this all, like we don't need outside interference. <laughs> And, that's... and this part. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. We want the Federation's help on everything else, but not on this one. Solve our problems when it's uh, convenient. Uh, and through it all, too, I mean, you're right. That is a very important line because it does come up later. Uh, as well, I just want to mark that they are talking about how they could potentially remove this programming from Denar. And mm. if they'd even tried, the, the line is, is, you know, if they could, why wouldn't they have already? And then uh, Data's like, mm, I'm not sure if that's true. And Dinar's like, yeah, I don't I don't know either. I don't know if I trust him even to have tried. Um, so all those things will come up later, of course. Um, and they are going to transfer him back to their ship. Picard is nervous. And he says, you know, have we, uh, Mr. Worf, have we made all security arrangements as possible? And he's like, yes, there's only going to be a 0.1 second differential between the the shield going down in the brig to when those transporter beam starts. But apparently you got BDE. That's all the time <laughs> you need. That's all the time you need. I guess if you get your hands outside of where the trans Damn, little jazz hands, that's enough to cause an explosion. I guess. Boom. He got powers, man. And Troy's like, no, you're going to die. And he's like, mm -mm, I ain't going to die. <laughs> Even in the nemesis files, he like has a, like five word allusion to his like uh something with chemicals in his body's allowed him to <laughs> <laughs> he, he couldn't even focus on it. he's like uh, don't, don't think about it it's sci-fi he's able to get through it because he doesn't want to be transported yeah. there it causes a big flash which was just enough uh i guess distraction uh well, if only mccoy knew about that huh yeah, all those right. years of not wanting to transport all he had to do is push out to the sides and he could have uh, I mean McCoy's upper body strength has always been suspect <laughs> <laughs> that dude has noodle arms from way back true. could barely lift his gun in his old westerns true so then we get another great line from O'Brien of being like what the hell I've never seen anything like this happen before <laughs> right. um, and he's and he's out he's on the ship somewhere he's got a phaser and uh they don't know where it's going to happen and then we get to uh the next bit after the commercial which is again mostly an action sequence this entire time and i actually really enjoyed that they spent as much time with this as they did because we don't we haven't seen this much right like it's a little bit 
well choreographed stuff. We know from previous Nemesis files that there's only so many hallways sets built, and so they really <laughs> use the heck out of that one hallway set in right. this in this sequence. Left, right, left. Le hold on, was that left? Turn it. Let's do it right. Fuck <laughs> it, it's okay. Time passed. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, shoot it, flip it. There is a great uh, shot, which I think they use the reflective nature of those computer panels to show him running down the, or walking confidently down. This again, this dude, I, I really like Jeff McCarthy. He looks so badass in, in how he's looking around and just seeing where he is and, 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 and what the security team is doing. Musical theater actors, man. Baddest asses there are. They got it going on. <laughs> Uh, the only downfall of the set here is that when they do have a few moments where they hit up against the walls, you can really see the move a little bit, don't you? But it takes you right back to that aha video, so you don't mind too much. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of you know bits where Riker is trying, Riker and Picard are being in the control room, trying to like you know in the bridge and trap him. Maybe if he uses a turbo lift, we'll do this, blah blah blah. But again, he uses a phaser. To, to do a shrieking sound that is going to explode. Overload. An overload, overload, yes, which causes some uh, consternation for Worf. He clears the deck, but then nobody clears the deck. The, the deck is not cleared at all. <laughs> so he clears the deck, and the guy goes a few feet away on the wall and makes a really like, bad face, like something terrible is going to happen, and then nothing happens. Nothing happens. <laughs> I, I did have a moment where I... Like they opened it up and he was gone, and I imagined that there that he had been in that elevator and that there was an access shaft. Which, when you think of an access shaft in the turbo lift, like it's got to go from all directions at the same time and 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 not you know uh, really work the way physics work. But he was just being a trickster. He was. He was indeed. And Worf, uh, Michael Dorn has to do this. Like I'm pressing a button, but you can tell there's like he's like what? I, there's nothing, no business for me to do here. But he was acting the business, and it looked it looked good. <laughs> uh, also in that shot, I don't know if it's because it's a, a high definition thing we're looking at, but you can really see the carpeting in the turbo lift. Did anyone else notice that, or was that just me? No, but I love it. <laughs> Was it I mean, uh, like wavy or something? Like it was like coming up, like I could. See, it looked like strings were coming up, and it was like just you know a carpet you have in your house that was not put down right. The cat, the cat got to it. The cat got to it. Uh, but of course, he gets into the Jeffries tubes, which we uh, are able to see for the first time. These are actually, I think, the first time the Jeffries tubes are uh, at actual man height. And yeah, I, that's a big fucking Jeffries tube. Yeah, that's just it, that's a hallway. That was re <laughs> repurposed. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, in all future iterations, there, there are more crawl spaces and ladders. Kate, something you said a second ago about the fact that the shafts would have to be kind of everywhere. I've always just kind of imagined that the uh, turbo lift and things are like the quick cars and tunnels in the Gummy Bears cartoon. <laughs> like, honestly, there are little tunnels all through. Yes. Yeah. I always imagined it as as Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, the great yeah. glass, glass elevator, elevator, which can go the Wonkavator, which, which yeah. which can go forwards or Up backwards sideways. or sideways. Yeah, I always Love thought of it. that way too, Kate. So he uses that to his full advantage. He also gets to engineering and beats up everybody there, but doesn't kill anyone. We think he's moving around some things. He you know he basically sets up his entire plan uh, throughout this entire sequence. But Jordy has some really great. He's he's super in love with Dana too. He's like this guy's incredible. Yeah. I didn't know anyone could move that fast. He's so hot. <laughs> I just love it when they figure out that he is leaving them a trail. Yeah. That's just great. Like, and it's so, 
I don't know. I just this is my favorite um, search for a prisoner in in Star Trek history. This is just exciting. I expected the Scooby Doo like he goes in one door and then they like come out at the same time and go through and like dim halls with the sound. One of the Harpo Lucy mirror moments. Yes, exactly. There's somebody in the hallway playing the piano, perfectly scoring it all. Well, we do get that amazing kind of audience misdirection in the shuttle bay, right? Because they know he's there. They're going to flood it with gas to make him go unconscious. There's a pressure suit gone. Riker has the brilliant idea, which ends up being completely wrong, that he's going to use the pressure suit to enter a different shuttle bay from outside the ship. And then Worf says, okay, we're going to go to that one. And nope, just kidding. Worf was also being deceptive and he thinks he's got it all down, but nope. Worf gets to lose a fight. He won in one fight, and then he has to lose another fight in the same episode. I think that's shitty for Michael Dorn. Well, he had help from Riker in the first one. True. Yeah. It was a gang up. It was. I don't know why they ended up using the shuttle bay that has all of the empty plastic containers. <laughs> They're not empty. <laughs> They're full of pressure suits. <laughs> <laughs> Which are nearly weightless. It makes for some really great action moments, though, of things falling down and lots of don't 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 type of things. Of course, Dwarf does get overpowered, and uh, Danar uses a phaser to power the transporter, and that was his plan all along, knocking out the sensors with an explosion uh, along the way. God, this guy is cool. Right? Uh, yes, that uh, that actually brings us to um, the the ninth and 10th uh, additions to Federation phaser technology. Um, if I may, I'd love to recap it for you. Yes. This is, again, from uh, Dennett Geeks, like we shared a couple weeks ago. Uh, so just to recap uh, the the complete list, we have a stun, kill, cut through door, heat up rocks, of course, <laughs> head explodey, <laughs> Aqueduct demolition, <laughs> yeah. smelt ore, uh, overkill. That yes. was a big one. That was a big addition. Uh, lots of people standing in line for that upgrade. Uh, and then this episode, we get two more. We get overload and we get quick charge. <laughs> you can use the phaser to quick charge even something as powerful as a transporter. They had the USB-C technology. You might think that this phaser costs $49.99. You might even be thinking it costs $59.99. And I know some of you are thinking it costs $79.99. That's me, Jimmy. That's me. That's what I think. Well, Eric, I'm here to tell you that you can have this phaser for three easy installments of only $19.99. But wait, if you order now, <laughs> you'll also get our new tricorder. Oh, oh. I don't have a tricorder, Jim. Fastmatic 76. It's going to be uh, everything for you. Bag of sulfuric acid. They figure out that he's gone. The sensors that he caused to uh, malfunction. I think he means sensor. Sensors. <laughs> are ruined uh, in pronunciation and in functionality. And uh, they got to tell Nayrock, and he's like, what? Oh, by the way, he attacked Luna 5 with our own shuttle. And now they're back here on the planet and they're heading to the capital city. Picard, we're not equipped to deal with this. This was internal security, but now we need your help. That's where Picard has a little conversation with Troy being like, are you sure he's conditioned? He can only be survived. This is the only part of the episode 
that doesn't make as much sense to me because if you're conditioning a guy who is all about survival, sure, of course he wants to survive, but he would also be used, or these these combatants would also be used on the offensive, right? So that's not the only conditioning they had. That's not that they can only kill when their survival is in danger. You would want to be able to use them in uh, an offensive in any way. But that's an important piece of information. Not, a, I mean, if it's special forces and very expensive to create one, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe this maybe, is, maybe it is abort, 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 and come back and kill later. Who knows? They beam down to the planet with a small away team, comparatively. Riker says to Worf, uh, because Picard is going on his own, and he says, the captain's responsibility is your personal responsibility, Mr. Worf. And they feels like an allusion to the previous seasons where Picard was never supposed to go on away teams on his own. But James Cromwell's like, what? This is all you brought? What happened to the, what are all your weapons? Aren't you going to defend us? Yo, it's my A crew, son. I don't need to bring anybody else. It's true. And that's where all of the guys in their awesome suits show up, including some some women who have also been conditioned. And they're like, no, we're taking this place over. They immediately run in. They've got weapons drawn. And that's where Picard says this is where the conditioning thing comes in. Don't attack them because then you're fine, I guess. Uh, they, w- they won't be able to kill you. And Danar says, no, really, come at me because you won't ignore us anymore. That's not what we're about. And this really does feel like a commentary on the Vietnam War veterans that have been standing up, you know, trying to be like, look, you can't, we, we did your fight for you and you turn your back on us, WTF. Well, there's a, right before the dudes, the, the, the prisoners arrive, they're talking to Cromwell and they're like, didn't you try to reverse it? And he's like, mm. well, we tried. And then eventually someone says, well, we may need them again. Which I and that's when the dudes come in because he's like, I don't want to kill him. We might need him. Yeah. Which I was just like, oh, that's the most evil thing you've said this entire episode, right? Like, there's been a lot of evil shit that we've talked about, but that sort of like, oh, we could fix them, but what if we need them? We spent a lot of money getting these guys to be good combatants. We're just gonna give that away now. Yeah, ridiculous. Well, I mean, that's partially. I mean, they, they say it's for physicality and such like that, but it's partially why we draft children. You know, we, you know, we say 18 is adult, but that's because we wanted to draft them. So, like, we do it because you can teach them to follow orders blindly and they might not understand the consequences of what they're doing right away. Like, that's... Yeah, that's messed up. That's why you don't start with 25-year-olds who understand the world a little better. Well, and there is a lot of data now that may not may have been known back then, but it's a little bit more known in the popular sense that the human brain doesn't really mature until 25, as you're saying, Eric. It's mm-hmm. not 18. Or, or 50. Or 50. I'm still... Let's <laughs> not, not put numbers on things. <laughs> I am still not mature either, Jimmy. Picard's biggest uh, thing is like, don't attack them. He says, wait, you can't just leave us here because he's going to leave. Picard's like, I'm going to nope out. The uh, way team is leaving. This is my big thing. You're going to have to figure this out on your own. And he throws that line that you mentioned, Kate, back at uh, the prime minister saying, this is a manner of internal security. So it's up to you to deal with it now. I like nope out better. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Picard up on the, you know, uh, once they're back up on the bridge says, if the government survives tonight, right. we'll figure out what we're going to do about them wanting to join the Federation. Well, I think more specifically, he says the Federation would be happy to reconsider their application again. And it struck me as like, wow, again, Picard is the most powerful person in the galaxy. 
<laughs> he gets it. He's unilaterally. Like, I'll let you in if you fix your shit. Guaranteed, you're in. I imagine that these uh, combatants were not on their any of their reports or documents too. So that's another reason why he's like, I've got all the information I need. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell my superiors about it. Well, it's an interesting thing. I've never really researched the the whole colonial politics uh, of the exploration stuff, but like when countries are the ones bankrolling explorers, are explorers given? Or were, <laughs> you know, right. were given the right to negotiate on behalf of the crown? Like, I, I know that's not a great metaphor for what Star Trek is, but it's not unlike it. Like, they're a colony ship. The negotiation usually meant uh, other things. <laughs> like extermination. No, I mean, you know, when they would, yes. <laughs> but often they would negotiate with local chiefs, blah, 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 stupid, awful shit. It's one, it was often one ship as opposed to an armada going in one place. But I mean, all those themes are here too, right? And so- I'm getting all political and preachy today. We can we can move on. Well, it's it's a it's a politically and preachy <laughs> episode and it ends- It is. It ends with Picard, I think, not necessarily, you know, and this is more of the writers kind of speaking directly to the audience a little bit. Like, hey, I think we, we're gonna choose. Uh, he believes that the Ngozians are gonna tr choose to do the right thing. It's just gonna take this confrontation uh, that they left in their in their laps to do it word <laughs> and that's it that's the episode again we don't have we don't have a really good uh snippy ending and i'm again i'm glad of that uh but we are going to have a snippy ending to the end of this podcast episode so jimmy i'm looking at you nodding and smiling what did you think of the hunted yeah well uh like i had just said this episode brought us up to 10 new uh phaser evolution so i'm gonna give this episode a 10 Divided by two. <laughs> it was middling for me. I love the idea that they uh, uh, introduced with the, the Rambo sort of thing. Uh, the problem with it for me was that the Angosians, although brilliantly acted by James Cromwell, was still like, I, I, I knew from the very second we saw them, they were hiding something. They were the bad guys. Uh, and this other guy wasn't the bad guy. And he, I thought, did a great job. And I love that scene between he and Data. But he was so self-aware of being bad and good and that I never really bought that he was actually psychologically damaged. Um, it it it, uh, it seemed like a manifestation of his own wants, really, because he didn't seem crippled psychologically by what they had done to him. Um, he functioned just too well, intellectually and physically. So it, it didn't work for me uh, in that regard. And so it's a five. Like, I love the idea and the acting was great, but the, the story that the writers put together, they didn't, they didn't really give those great actors anything to chew on. It was, it was a bunch of air, hot air. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, I myself have never known someone who's hurting to put on a good face and hide it, right? Um, <laughs> so, Eric, what did you think of this episode? I give it seven deadpan Jimmies. <laughs> the look on Jimmy's face after was about as deadpan as it gets. I love it. I thought it was a, uh, I, I agree with every one of Jimmy's criticisms except for that one. I, I, I agree. I think uh, uh, I did buy the the damage behind what he was doing, but I agree uh, all the plot stuff all, uh, but, but because I do love the performances so much and the action sequences I thought were fantastic, I go up to a seven because I mean, it's Star Trek. I love Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> I have a tough time giving anything, but like, the code of honor shit under five. 
So seven it is. Kate, what are what are you thinking about this episode? I'm gonna give this one seven person sized Jeffrey tubes. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you can stretch out in it. It's nice. I I get what Jimmy is saying. I just disagree with most of it. I like this episode. Uh, it's not my favorite, but I enjoy the cat and mouse aspect of it. The sort of um, the chase. I like the fact that we get to see that multiple times, both like with a ship chase and then an, an on foot chase, um, which is really interesting. And I think that the subject matter is sort of timeless uh, in terms of how we talk about the way we, you know, not just the way we condition, you know, soldiers, but the way that people are conditioned uh, to live in poverty or to live, uh, you know, in in violence or to live and and how do we break free from that um it's just an interesting question to me that i think spans uh time so i'm for it nice i think i am gonna give it seven and a half exclamations from geordie laforge on this guy's incredible um <laughs> i love the juxtaposition between it being a pretty deep episode that was dealing with issues that were a lot more front and center in 1990 with our dealing with veterans and and, and how we absorb them back into society while also making it a really good action slash tactical episode in which we, we don't get very often especially on board the enterprise itself and so that's really hard to pull off, and I think it did it, it did it really excellently well. And I would watch it again, and I have watched it several times over the last uh, week or so. So it is, it's not funny. It's not one of the funnier ones, but you do like this character a lot in Roga Danar. And you know, I I was doing a little bit of research and finding out he uh, uh, a lot of people like to cosplay as this guy. Like th this character has a life in the fandom uh, afterwards, even though he only appears on this one episode, which I you know, kind of speaks to the testament of, of, of how much uh, this character uh, spoke to people. And it's a textbook example of how you can have an anti-hero that's not racist and sexist uh, just to code as bad. Mm. It can be dangerous like this. It can be unpredictable. It can be amoral. It doesn't have to be the, the way that Hollywood often just defaults into making someone who is, it's a surprise when they do something nice racist and sexist that kind of asshole right right this guy this guy was an asshole only because he was a defense mechanism more often than that mm -hmm. right all right well that's the hunted we're very excited to have had this discussion i enjoyed it with all of you and uh now my pants are completely wet and i'm looking forward to our next episode to get together so that i can change them you're gonna wait a week a whole week yeah <laughs> Didn't put that together as I was saying it out loud. Thanks. <laughs> we appreciate you for voyaging with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Instagram and Twitter at ReEngageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge crew on all of the social medias, Kate Yeager is Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by me, Greg Tito. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo97. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now 
as Dr. Beverly Crusher is ready 